This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Bible turn to the book of James, chapter number one. Continue our series entitled Practical Christianity. Uh, James uh, was written by the half brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a book written to uh, believers that were scattered abroad. Uh, these would have been Jewish believers uh, who had gotten saved at Jerusalem and uh, Persecution had come to the church of Jerusalem and they scattered. And as a result of that, they didn't really have a, any good authority structure in place yet. And so he just wrote a letter to not individual churches, but Christians who were scattered all over the known world at the time. And so, uh, so much good information, so many nuggets of wisdom. Uh, because James uh, just has so much wisdom packed in and not necessarily one particular central theme, uh, it's often been called the Proverbs of the New Testament and the fact that there's just so much wisdom and so many good nuggets uh, that we pass through here. And so, But really for you and I, the book of James is a book on practical Christianity. If we call ourselves Christians, how does that change the way that we live every day? Uh, how does that change our interactions with coworkers? How does that change uh, how we uh, uh, interact with people uh, at our hobbies or our interests that we have? How does it change the way that we live our lives on a day-to-day basis? And James has a lot of really good answers for that. Last week, we took a look at how the Bible says in verse number five, James uh, chapter one, verse number five, how if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. And so we took a look at the importance of wisdom and how uh, if we ask God for wisdom, he's promised to give it to us. And every single one of us needs wisdom from God. We're going down to take a look at verses six and seven here tonight as we look at this passage of scripture. We'll uh, start in verse number five just to to keep the context together, but we'll take a look at verses six and seven uh, and actually verse number eight here tonight as well. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth or corrects or rebukes not, and it shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea tossed, driven with the, the wind and tossed. Let not any man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways." As we take a look at this passage of Scripture, again, the promise in verse number 5 is that if we lack wisdom, ask God, He'll give it to us, and He'll give it to us liberally. But then it goes on in verse number uh, 6, 7, and 8 and tells us how we should ask. Now, when it comes to God, everything uh, comes back to faith because God is moved by faith. Uh, For you and I, the Christian life is all about faith. If you take faith out of the Christian life, you have literally nothing left. Faith is, is kind of the engine that drives everything. Without faith, uh, we have nothing whatsoever of any substance. Now, for you and I to even believe in God, for you and I to even believe that the Bible is true, for you and I to believe that Jesus Christ was a man, it requires faith. None of us have ever actually seen God with our own eyes. None of us have seen Jesus Christ with our own eyes. We believe the Bible to be the Word of God because it tells us so. And so there's some measure of faith that's required for you and I to even believe the basic things about the Bible. And for you and I, when we talk to someone who isn't maybe a Christian, it's important that we understand that they might not be at the same level of faith that they need to be to understand the, the deep truths of the Bible. 
they might not even be at the beginning point of beginning to understand the things of the Bible. Sometimes I'll sit down with folks and I'll talk about the gospel with them and I'll say, do you believe that there's a God? And sometimes people say yes, sometimes they say no. And look, if you don't believe that there's a God, we can't really go any further into your understanding of the gospel and uh, eternal life and heaven and hell and the deep truths of the Bible unless we first agree that there is a God in heaven and that God in heaven requires something from us. Now, oftentimes people will say, well, I don't really believe that there's a God. And so then the question becomes, well, where do you steer the conversation? The same way I was going to steer it before, I'm just going to give them the gospel. I'm going to tell them, well, I believe based on the Bible, based on my experience, that there is a God, and that God requires something of us. He, he's given us a list of guidelines to follow for life. He's given us rules to follow. Those are outlined in His Word. And we've broken all of God's commandments. Uh, God gave Ten Commandments to uh, the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Sometimes people have heard of the Ten Commandments, but the fact of the matter is, is God's Word is full of commandments, and you and I break them all the time. Sin isn't that one thing that we did in high school that we're embarrassed by or that one thing in college that we probably shouldn't have done. Sin is part of our nature. It's who we are. We continue to sin and we could not stop sinning if we wanted to of our own power because we're not strong enough to do that because sin is who we are. And because our sin has uh, broken God's law, there's consequences. Anytime you break the law, there's always a consequence to be paid. And the Bible says the wages of our sin, the consequences of our sin is death. Because we've sinned against God, we're going to die not only physically, but we're also going to die spiritually one day and be separated from God forever in a place called hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. Nobody that I know and love, I would want to go to hell. Even the, the most despicable person on planet earth that I could possibly imagine, the last thing that I would want for them is hell because of what the Bible says about it. But here's the good news. God doesn't want anybody to go to, to, go to hell either. The Bible says God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants everyone to be saved. Saved from hell. Saved from their sin. Saved from the penalty of their sin. But God, because God is a loving God, can't just let people off. He can't just tear up all the wrong things we've done and act like they never happened, that wouldn't be any justice. Somebody still has to pay. And the payment, again, is death. Somebody has to die. And so God, in His love, His mercy, His grace, His kindness, sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins. He sent Jesus to die in my place. You see, I was supposed to die, but Jesus died for me. I was supposed to be punished for my sin, but Jesus was punished for me. That's the song that we just sang, this the power of the cross, Son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Because Jesus came and died in our place, we can have the forgiveness of sin so that we don't have to die. But you've got to make a decision for yourself. Every person has to, for themselves personally, decide, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that He died on the cross to pay for my sins. I'm willing to put my faith and trust in Him as Savior, and I'm asking Him to save me and forgive me of my sin. If you're willing to do that, or if you have done that, the Bible says you can be saved. Salvation isn't found in a church. Being saved isn't found in baptism, or doing good works, or doing good things, or doing religious practices. Being saved from your sin or going to heaven isn't based on your church attendance or what church you go to or how often you go. It's based on who has paid for your sins, yourself or Jesus. 
And so to be able to receive Jesus Christ as Savior requires faith and repentance. I have to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. I have to believe that God's word is true. And I have to be willing to turn from my sin and turn to Jesus just like the Bible says. So to be saved, number one, requires faith. Has to. But for you and I as Christians, those of us that have been saved, our Christian life doesn't stop having, needing faith at that moment. Faith, that's just the beginning of our faith. Our faith will continue to grow for the rest of our lives. If we take a look at our, in, in James, verse number five, chapter number one, verse number five, and if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given unto him. But let him ask how? In faith. You can't just act and go, well, I'll ask God for wisdom. I don't know if I'll actually get it or not, but uh, I'm willing to ask. No, that doesn't work with God. When we come to God in prayer, we have to ask in faith, truly believing that God's going to give it. But let him ask of God in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. As we take a look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 21, turn over there if you would. Keep your finger here in in James chapter 1. We're going to come back in a sec, but uh, turn over if you would to Matthew chapter 21. I want you to turn there, first of all, because I want you to be in a habit of looking at verses in the Bible, and maybe you need to mark this in your Bible as well, but this verse also sometimes gets misapplied and misunderstood, and so I want to make sure that we explain what Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying. Matthew chapter 21, verse number 21. Jesus has cursed the fig tree and it withered away. In verse number 20, the disciples asked him, hey, how did you do that? Verse number 21, Jesus answered and said unto them, verily I say unto you, if you have not faith, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but you'll also say unto that mountain, be thou removed and that be cast into the sea and it shall be done. In all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Verse number 22 is really important because it shows that it's not enough, just enough to pray. We have to actually pray with faith and believe that God's going to do it for us. Now the part that gets a hang up for some people is verse number 21. It's important to understand, again, I want to be clear on this, that we as, the, as, as Bible-believing Christians, we interpret the Bible literally. If God says something, literally, we mean it. We believe that he means it. Unless, this is really important, this is really important, you gotta put on your thinking cap for this, okay? We take the Bible literally unless God is obviously speaking in a figurative sense. Does that make sense? I know it sounds crazy. But here's the problem. Sometimes people who interpret the Bible, what we call allegorically, We'll say, Jonah wasn't really in the belly of a whale. He was just in a very dark place in his life in that time. And the Bible describes it as the belly of a whale because it's a hopeless, dark, cold, fearful place. So Jonah wasn't really in the belly of a whale. That's speaking allegorically. He was just in a really bad spot in his life. No, we believe the Bible says that a whale swallowed him up. Therefore, a whale swallowed him up. And when it was done, it vomited him out on dry land because that's what the Bible says. The problem with an allegorical interpretation of the Bible is that we become the arbiters of what's allegory and what's not. 
So in other words, if you interpret the Bible allegorically, the fact that it's just a bunch of really good stories, then maybe Jesus wasn't really a man. Maybe Jesus was the figment of our imagination of what good being embodied would look like. And the devil isn't really a real person. That's just evil uh, in, in the person form. And so, again, the Bible then becomes this, this allegory and, and kind of like Aesop's fables of, of stories that have a moral truth, but the people aren't really real. The Bible is the Word of God. It should be interpreted li- literally unless it is figurative. And so you say, well, how is it obviously figurative? For example, when David, the psalmist, says that he'll find comfort under the shadow of God's wings, David is not speaking like God is going to perch himself up in a tree and God is going to spread his wings and David's going to grab his stuff and go under that little shadow where the wings are and he's going to set up camp underneath the shadow of the wings and that's where he's going to find comfort. You look at that and you go, well, that's kind of silly. Because the Bible's obviously speaking in figurative terms when he says that. Obviously. When the Bible says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower in which we can run and hide. It's not talking about the name of God is literally a big pile of rocks that have been placed into a tower formation that you and I, when we have a bad day, we can run to the God tower and hide in there. It's not what he's talking about. It's obviously speaking figuratively. Are you with me so far tonight? Just nod your head like this. I'll hear the rocks shaking inside and I'll know that you're with me, all right? Figurative versus literal. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was in the the tomb for three days and he rose again the third day. Literally in a tomb, literally rose again of his own power upon the third day, resurrected literally in bodily form. The Bible's clear in that. Now the... You have to put on your thinking cap and just be wise. When you come to passages like verse number 21 where Jesus says, hey, you saw me cause that that fig tree to wither up? You can do the exact same thing and you can, if you have enough faith, tell that mountain to be removed into the sea and it'll be done. All you have to do is pray and believe and it will be done. Jesus is speaking of the fact that you and I have great power in the ability to pray and to receive things from the Lord. What Jesus is not saying is that you and I have the ability to say to Diamond Head, get out of here and be cast over into the sea and we can really do it. That I'm going to walk out to that plumeria tree that I planted that has brought forth no flowers yet this season and say, you are cursed of God and that, mag- that beautiful tree is going to wither up, plumeria tree is going to wither up and die because I said it to be so. And you look and you say, do people really believe that? Oh, unfortunately they do. Unfortunately, many people take this verse out of context and uh, not understanding the Bible speaking, Jesus speaking here figuratively, and to say that our prayer has great power. And Jesus illustrated the power of that by saying, hey, if you really had enough faith, you could move a mountain and cast it into the sea if you wanted to. And they believe that you and I have the ability to manifest things just by simply speaking it. For example misinterpretation of the scripture would say if you have cancer in your body all you have to say is cancer be gone from me and it will be taken from you immediately and you look at that and you go that sounds like crazy talk i agree 
But here's the rub. You, you command cancer to be gone. You, you declare it in the name of Jesus that it leaves your body and you really believe that it's going to happen. But you go back to the doctor and you get another scan only to find out that your cancer is spread. What's the answer to that? Oh, the, the answer according to them is in verse number 22. In all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. You just didn't believe enough. It's your fault. Did you really believe that you could get cast cancer out of your body? You must not have because it spread. And so now the problem is with you. And you don't have enough faith. And you're not good enough. And you'll never be good enough. And here's the, here's the worst part about people who believe in this idea of name it and claim it and prosperity gospel and word of faith and materializing things and saying things and they just automatically appear. The problem is, is these people never get the opportunity to die with grace and dignity. Because if you get sick and, you, and we're going to rebuke this in Jesus' name and you don't get rid of it, it's because you didn't believe enough. And so you don't get the opportunity to say, hey, this is the sovereign will of God that God wants to be glorified through my life. No, you just didn't have enough faith to cast it out of your body. And you get to die as a miserable Christian. That's a bummer. And so that's why, for me, I have such a deep-seated hatred, and I'll say that word hatred, for a false gospel that says that we can just automatically say stuff and God has to do it. It's blasphemous, and it hurts the name of Christ, and it's damaging to people who really just want to follow Jesus. I met a guy several months ago that attended one of these Word of Faith churches and they had prophesied these words over him that he would, he would reach the nations and he was going to be this great leader and he was going to be all kinds, tens of thousands of people were going to follow him as he led people to Christ and he was going to shake the nations and all this other stuff. And after about six years of being in a church like that, he walked away from it realizing that there was no substance there. And he came to me and he said to me, Pastor, I just wanted to learn the Bible and have friends. I wasn't trying to shake the nations or find words of prophecy or, or speak things into existence. I just wanted to know the Bible, know Jesus, and have friends. And it broke my heart because here was a guy who bought into a false religious system that called itself Christian that wasn't even remotely Christian. And so what Jesus is not saying here is that you and I can just speak whatever we want and it just automatically comes to fruition. If that's the case, then God's just a genie in a bottle. We just rub him and tell him what we want and it just automatically appears. And to anybody who understands a shred of the Bible would say, that is utter foolishness. So again, we're not talking about manifesting things. We're not talking about saying things and they automatically appear. We're not talking about literally taking mountains and casting them into the sea. We're not talking about literally causing fig trees to wither up. We're talking about this though. If you want to move the heart of God, faith is the gasoline in the engine that gets things going. Because if you and I pray flippant prayers... Well, God, I got this situation. You probably don't care anything about it, and you probably won't do anything anyways, but if you could help out, that'd be great. God doesn't hear prayers like that. But if I come before God and I say, God, you're the one that spoke the world into existence. All you have to do is say the word, and this thing will be over and done with. And I believe that if you would will this to be done, that you could make it happen, and I'm asking you on my behalf to have your will done in my life. And I ask that with real faith, believing God's going to say, yes, now I'm ready to move. Now, again, it's important to understand that when we pray, we don't always get our way. When we pray, we always get God's way. And I've often described prayer as this. Prayer is not getting God to align himself with my plans. Prayer is getting my heart to align with God's plans. That's what prayer is. And so, again, if we get this idea that I can just tell God what to do, then God's no longer God. I am. If God has to do everything I tell him to do, then God's no longer God, I am. 
But prayer is more of me getting my heart right with God so that I can say, God, let your will be done. God, if you want to help me in my career, that would be great. If not, I'm okay with wherever I'm at. God, if, if this opportunity that's opening itself up would glorify you, I'm up for it. But if not, I trust you. And so as we mature in our faith, our prayer time will be less telling God what to do and more of seeking God's will to be done in our lives and God to be glorified through it. And prayer often, the more that I pray, the more that I find my heart changes more than God's heart changes. Because God already has a sovereign plan in place that he wants us to pray, that he wants us to ask in faith, truly believing. Not so much that it changes God's mind or it changes God's heart, but more that it changes our hearts instead. Go back to James chapter 1. It's important to understand that you cannot receive anything from God without faith, period. You can't receive eternal life. You can't receive God's blessings. You can't please and honor the Lord without faith. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 6, but without faith it's impossible to please God. Not improbable or unlikely, it's impossible to please God without faith. You want to receive anything from God, it's going to require faith on your part. And without legitimate faith, you can't even expect anything from God. You say, wait a minute, aren't those two statements the same? No, you can't receive anything from God, but without real deal legitimate faith, you can't even expect God to do anything on your behalf, much less receive anything. You don't even have the expectation that God would do anything. But as our faith grows and as, as our belief in Jesus Christ grows and our, we see the promises of God's word become alive in our lives, as we walk with Jesus and our faith becomes real for us, it's not something that got passed down to us from our parents. It's really mine. It's not just something I grew up with as a kid. It's really mine. It's not something that my coworker told me I should do. It becomes mine. As we see that, we'll then begin to understand the character of God, what God wants to give us, and then what our expectation of God is as well. I see a story that's often told in Sunday school to, to kids of great faith of three boys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, keep your Bible handy because we're going to take a look at a couple different scriptures now. But turn back to Daniel chapter 3. I want you to see this. This is so good. Daniel chapter 3. If you have the same Bible that I do, it's on page 1061 if that helps you. It probably doesn't help anybody. Daniel chapter 3, verse number 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told that they have to bow down to the king. <laughs> and if they don't, they're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. Um, verse number 6, uh, let's take a look at verse number 15. So again, here's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar says, when, when the music plays, everybody bows down and worships me. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not going to do it. I said, no, you are. Verse number 15, now if you be ready, at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I've made, 
Well, but if you worship not, you should be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? So not only is Nebuchadnezzar saying, hey, you're going to fall down and worship this idol, and you're going to have to do it. And if you don't, what's the name of your God again that's supposed to deliver you from this? It's a mockery. He's making fun of, of their faith in God. I love verse number 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee this matter. In other words, we're not really going to give a whole lot of thought to what we're getting ready to say. We're just going to say it, and we're not really worried about what you have to think about it either. I love that. If it so be, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. God's able to do this if he wants to. But I love verse 18, I love this. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Hey, God's gonna deliver us from this, but even if he doesn't, we're still not gonna bow down and worship. Don't care. Because you know what they realized? They couldn't force God to save them from the fiery furnace. And again, the idea that we can tell God what to do is just utter foolishness. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that bowing down would save them from the fiery furnace, but if they didn't, they'd be thrown in the furnace. But they didn't expect God to save them from it. They knew that he could, but they didn't expect him to. God wasn't obligated to them. And here's something that's going to help you in your Christian life. God never owes you anything, ever. If you receive anything good from him, which we'll see in the book of James, I love James. If you receive anything of God, it's only because he's gracious. It's only because he's loving. It's because he's kind. It's not because he owes you anything. We sometimes get this idea like, well, I went to church this Sunday. God owes me one. <laughs> no. God has been gracious enough to give you eternal life and to wipe the slate clean of all the sin that you've ever done. If anybody owes God anything, it's us owing God everything. But here's what Shadrach Meshach and Abednego said. They said, hey, we're not going to bow down and worship your, your, your golden idol. And God will save us from the fiery furnace if he chooses to. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down and worship. Don't care. Because they didn't have an expectation that God was at their beck and call to do anything that, he, that they asked. They knew that God was gracious. And here's the thing, if God chose not to be gracious, they're willing to die for their faith. That's faith in action. Those type of things get the attention of God. Turn back to James. Again, God is not only moved by faith, but it's only faith that pleases God. God's only pleased by faith. Again, if you got your Bible open there to the book of James chapter 1, if you might, might thumb back one page back on the left-hand side there to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 6 says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. Not improbable or unlikely, it's impossible to please God without faith. You can do really good stuff, but if you don't do it in faith, it doesn't please God. Think about that. I can hand an uh, invite to church to a coworker. And I can say, well, you probably won't come, and, but here's this, this is where I go on Sunday if you're ever interested, but they're probably never going to come, but I mean, there's that. God's not pleased by that. God looks at that and goes, hmm, wow, what a missed opportunity. But if I say, hey, I want to give you this invite to church. I don't know if you have a church you go to or not, but on the back is the most important thing you'll ever read in your entire life. And if you just take time to read what the Bible says about heaven, I know it changed your life, it changed mine. And you really believe that God could use that? Oh, man. God's up in heaven going, yeah, do that again. 
Yeah, come on. Yeah, that's good. Do it again. Let's go. That pleases God. That fires God up. Obedience always pleases God. Faith always pleases God every single time. You could drop a check in the offering for $10,000 tonight and you're thinking, well, this isn't really a lot. This doesn't really make a lot of difference and be a good tax write-off for me. God's not interested in that. God wants a cheerful giver. God wants somebody who gives by faith. Hey, I give tonight because giving shakes the kingdom of God and it moves the, the kingdom forward. And I might give of all that I have, even if it's only $10 is all that I have. And I give it in faith, believing God can use that. And that's a seed sown for the king that's going to bring forth eternal fruit. Man, that excites me and that excites the heart of God. Because faith is what pleases God. But I love what Hebrews 11, 6 says again. But without faith it's impossible to please God. But he that cometh to God must believe that he is. That he is what? That he is who he says that he is. That he is the I am, the self-existent one. I have to come to God believing that he is good to his word, that he's good to his promises. That the Bible isn't just a, a book full of stories, it's the story of God. It's God's word to us. And if I'm willing to live by faith and believe that, here's a promise that will rock your socks. And he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Oh, man, Hebrews 11.6 is good. Here's the thing. God doesn't owe me, but he's promised to reward me. Isn't that something? What does he require of me? That I live by faith and that I trust in his word. And if I'm willing to do that, the Bible said he's willing to reward me. Now, again, if you want to misread the Bible in a selfish context, you can read that like, ooh, what's my reward? Ooh, what do I get? Do I get more money? Do I get a raise at work? Do I get the accolades of my peers? Do I get to be super popular? What's the reward that I get? You're misreading the Bible. Because one of the greatest rewards that God can give is His grace, His love, His mercy, His kindness, His Spirit, His Son, His Word, His promises, His church. Those are rewards. And again, if you're looking for material rewards from God, oh man, you got the wrong God. Again, the God of prosperity that's going to give you a new car because you say that he owes you, that's not the God of the Bible. I don't know who you worship, but that's not God. There are churches that literally tell you to go sit down in the car of your dreams and say, I command in the name of Jesus that this car is mine. And just go ahead and claim it. God, it doesn't work that way. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not Christianity. God is not an idle giver. God is a good gift giver. There's a difference. So God is only pleased by faith, but weak faith causes instability. Here's where sometimes younger Christians and especially carnal Christians fall. And the fact that their faith is really strong on the weekends when they're in church and around other Christians and it's pretty weak throughout the rest of the week. And weak faith causes instability. Again, take a look at, at James chapter 1, verse number 6. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For those that are 
surfers and watermen. That's not me. Again, if I'm more than 25 yards off the, the uh, shoreline, come looking for me because I'm lost. But the waves, how do you know if we got good waves or not? Are the waves in charge of the waves? No. Tide is in charge, the wind, the weather. Those things determine the waves. What do the, the waves do? The waves just react. Some days there's good waves, some days there's bad waves. Some days they're tall, some days, sometimes they're, they're short. Sometimes they break hard, sometimes they break softer. Sometimes they break closer to the shore, sometimes they break further out. What's the waves going to do? I don't even know. Plan on going surfing. You listen to the surf report on the radio or the news or the internet. Why? Because you never know what the waves are going to do, right? This is the person with an unstable faith. It's like the waves. What are they going to do? I don't know. And when weak Christians face difficulty in life, the question is always, what's going to happen? Where are they going to go? Are they willing to see this through or are they going to be tossed with the waves? Again, when it comes down to, to having weak faith, you have to ask yourself this question. If you can't trust God, who can you trust? We take a look at this, you know, the, the idea of fear on Sunday mornings. And look, if you can't trust God in the middle of your storm, who can you trust? I love my wife with every fiber of my being. But she's a human being and she lets me down from time to time. And I can't put my full faith and trust in her because I know for a fact that she's going to let me down at some point. And I say the same thing as her husband. I don't ever want to let her down, but I will because I'm just human. But oftentimes we're willing to put our faith and trust in other people, but not our faith and trust in God. Why is that? Because if you can't trust God, who could you really trust? And if you can't really trust the word of God, what are you basing your life decisions off of? And so having a weak faith is problematic on a hundred different levels. A divided mind has no allegiance and no anchor. Again, verse number 8 says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Again, if I decide that I'm going to live for Jesus on Sundays, but I'm going to live for myself on Monday morning, I've got a divided mind. When a situation comes up, I don't ask the question, what glorifies God? I ask myself, what do I want? And could that also glorify God? But I'm not sure which one I'll take. And so this instability and lack of faith, I don't have any allegiance to anybody. I'm not 100% Jesus. I'm all for Jesus when it's convenient for me, but then that's not really being loyal to, to, to Christ at all. I have no anchor, no place to drop anchor and, be, and have a solid foundation to you. I'm just kind of being tossed back and forth. Best thing in the world you can do is to put your feet down in a solid foundation that is Jesus Christ and build your life on that. Angela and I made a decision two plus decades ago. We're going to follow Jesus with everything we got, whatever that means, wherever that leads us. And again, at the time, we were not, not serving God in full-time vocational ministry. I wasn't a pastor. We were just trying to figure life out. I was in the Navy at the time, and we were just trying to figure life out, but we decided this. We don't know a lot, but we believe the Bible's true, and if the Bible's true, we're going to stake our life on it, whatever that means. Fast forward two decades later, look where we find ourselves. Being a pastor is not in the top 25 professions I ever thought I would do with my life, and probably the last thing that I'd ever want to do with my life, of my own power. But when you make a decision to make Jesus everything, 
and stop being wishy-washy, man, God does crazy things in your life. An immature faith has no discernment. Again, this idea of being tossed to and fro. One of the things I want for you as a Christian is that you would be wise and that you would have discernment. If you have wisdom and discernment, you can kind of figure life out. Let me just tell you that. If you had those two things, wisdom and discernment, because you'll be able to see things through a biblical lens. You'll be able to see like, ooh, I don't think that jives with what the Bible says. You'll be able to hear preaching and teaching and say, hey, that is biblically sound. That is theologically solid. Hey, that is good stuff right there. And if you also have wisdom and discernment, you'll be able to hear preaching and go, ah, I don't think that's what that means. I don't think that, that jives with the Bible. Wisdom and discernment will help you with that. For our teenagers, our single adults, my prayer for you is that you'll have wisdom and discernment. It'll take you so far in life. But the one who lacks wisdom, the one who lacks discernment, they're going to be tossed to and fro. I have Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 14 says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The devil's going to lie to you. The devil's going to try to get you off track. The devil's going to throw things in your path to get you away from the truth. And if you have the wisdom and discernment to see it ahead of time, you'll, you'll be much better off. I promise you that. Verse number eight. I, I, I did you a favor just to let you know so we can get through the book of James before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Um, <laughs> verse number eight. A double-minded man is unstable in all those ways. I had like literally like three messages built on this, but I just rolled it all into this one. Like, we don't need to have three messages on the double-minded man, right? But this is so critical because this will help you out in every single area of your life because a double-minded man is unstable in not most of his ways, but all of his ways. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. You cannot serve two gods. You cannot live for the world and live for Jesus. You cannot have the approval of this world and have the approval of God at the same time. You've got to pick a side. And if you're not willing to pick a side, just know this, everything in your life will be unstable, guaranteed. Because you never know which side you're on. You can be one person with your church friends and another person with your work friends. And guess what? You don't even know who you are. That's the thing when you are around someone who is double-minded, who is unstable. You never really know which one is the real version. Is the real you the guy that we see at church? Are you just a Christian who happens to be a little bit carnal during the week? Or is the carnal you the real you? And the person that we see in church, is that the fake version? And many times people who are double-minded don't even know the answer to that. They couldn't answer it themselves. They don't know which one the real one is. And so best thing you can do, just be the same everywhere. Because a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. That's why the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 6, 5, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Every fiber of your being, love God, and let that be it. 
Because the Bible tells us again, to be a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God. The Bible is very, very black and white. That's why, for me, it's so funny. Sometimes people are like, well, what about all the gray areas in the world today? What gray areas are you speaking of? The Bible's really ridiculously clear. Well, I think we should talk about this because the way that our world is today. I'm not talking about the way the world is today. I'm talking about the way the Bible has always been. I read a quote by some knuckleheaded pastor who actually has a massive following of a huge megachurch this past week and says that, that um, he, he quoted something on social media that said something like, if you went to church as a kid and didn't like it, you should come back and check us out because God's changed a lot since then. I had to reread that. Like, there's no pastor that would actually say that. Like, if you went to church when you were a kid and didn't enjoy it, come back and check it out because God's changed a lot since then. What? Anybody that's read a portion of the Bible would know that God never changes. The immutability of God is one of his attributes. The fact that he never changes. What, What kind of nonsense is that? But you know what? A double-minded man would say, hey, tell me more about this. Yeah, this church isn't like that old stodgy church I was in when I was a kid. God must have changed a whole lot since then. What? No. But you see, a double-minded man wants to, to have his flesh gratified. And if we can call it Christian while you gratify my flesh, I'm okay with that. So we'll go to a church that has an interpretive dance where people dance to the Lord. We went to, to this one church one time, oh my soul. And for the, the offering, instead of having somebody sing a song or play, they had a dude do an interpretive dance. And just let me tell you this, first of all, guys should not wear tights. There's never an appropriate time for a guy to wear tights. Guys should definitely not wear tights in church. Guys that wear tights in church should not dance while twirling ribbon flags in church. And evidently the song they were playing, I wasn't familiar with the song, but evidently it was positive and encouraging because it definitely wasn't a Christian song. But this dude jumped and writhed and did circles on the the stage while twirling this flag to Jesus. And I'm thinking to myself, what on earth does this have to do with Christianity? And then afterwards, the pastor came out, man, people were clapping, there were people crying. It's like, I'm crying, but for a different reason. Like, <laughs> I feel like I need to like wash my eyeballs after watching that, right? What in the world is this? Praise God for Jacob and his interpretive dance. I just felt the spirit moving, and people were like, yes, amen, and people are clapping. You felt the spirit moving? I felt my stomach churning, you know? It's just like, but I thought to myself, what environment has been created here that people think that God is pleased by that? Like, what pleases God? Obedience? God's glory pleases Him? You know, and, and when we sing songs or we have somebody sing a special or something like that, the whole purpose of it is the glory of God, not the entertainment of our flesh. And so again, we have to come back and say, I don't want my flesh to be gratified. I want my flesh to be put to death. I want Jesus to be glorified in my life. I want me to die. I want Christ to live. That's what I'm looking for. But again, you're trying to play both sides. You're going to be greatly disappointed. 
And again, I'll tell you this 101 times until I'm blue in the face, until the day that I die. If you try to live for Jesus and try to live for the world at the same time, you'll be disappointed with both. Both of them. Because you can't indulge enough of the world because you're still trying to put on a facade of following Jesus and you'll never get everything that the world has to offer. And you'll never get everything that Jesus has to offer because you're not willing to let go of the world. And so you'll be disappointed with both things. So pick a side. Because a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. A double-minded man wants to keep all of his options open for whatever might suit him. Well, I want to keep these options open. I want to cut off these friends over here, even though we go out and get drunk and smoke dope and have sex and stuff like that. I don't want to cut them off because if I ever decide I just need to blow off some steam, these are the guys I want to call. You're double-minded, and the Bible says you're unstable in all of your ways. Well, I might need to this later down the road, so I don't really want to let go of that yet. <laughs> I've had the fortune or misfortune of being with guys when they decide that they're going to get sober. Man, I'm getting rid of all my drugs. I'm throwing them all out. But pastor, can I smoke one last joint? <laughs> you can do whatever you want. But if you really want to follow Jesus, you won't. Pastor, I'm going to give up drinking, but I got this party I'm going to this weekend. Can I give up drinking after the weekend? You can do whatever you want. You really can but you won't be satisfied. If you really want to follow Jesus, you can't. But the double-minded man wants to leave whatever options open and he can if he can run back to it every opportunity that he gets. Final thought here tonight. Double-mindedness is a black mark on your entire life. That sounds like a really, really harsh statement. It's just true. Single ladies that date a guy who's double-minded, you're setting yourself up for a lifetime of misery. Because I guarantee you the guy that can't be committed to Jesus, flipping in his commitment to Jesus, is probably going to be flipping in his commitment to your dating relationship. Just a thought. Probably flippant in how he pays his bills or manages his money. Probably flippant on how he thinks he's going to plan ahead for the future. Probably going to be flippant in his commitment to your children should God give you children in the future. Probably going to be flippant on his commitment to work and actually getting a job and having a career and trying to be somewhat successful and be able to provide for his family. And probably going to be flippant in his family's commitment to church if God would give you children in the future. And you say, well, pastor, that sounds awfully judgmental to me. Well, James says... A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Just a thought. You say, wow, i got to avoid those double-minded people. <laughs> you need to make sure that you're not the double-minded person. Well, that's not me. Are you sure? If you were to rate your commitment to Jesus on a scale of 1 to 10, would you be hitting 10s? Well, most days, okay. Leaving those options open, just in case, though. Oh, you got to be willing to do this or not. And, and again, 
I would never in a million years want to see anybody in our church, any of the single adults in our church, be in a dating relationship with someone who's double-minded because you're setting yourself up for failure. And some of you that are already in a marriage where your spouse is double-minded, guess what? You're stuck. <laughs> Congratulations. Help them to be single-minded. Pray that the Holy Spirit of God would change them from the inside out. But double-mindedness will bring instability in every single solitary area of your life. And one of the worst things that could ever be said about you is the fact that you are double-minded. Because the double-minded man, just know this, they're prone to gossip because they have no allegiance to anybody. The double-minded man can't be trusted because you don't know where their loyalty lies. And so again, we've got to come back to this and say, hey, I just want to be faithful. I just want Jesus. I don't want to be double-minded. I don't want to have to remember what person I'm trying to be today. I don't have to want to try to remember not to cuss around the pastor. I just don't want to cuss around anybody. I don't want to have to remember that I can't tell my friends at church where I actually went this weekend because that would be embarrassing. I don't want to have to remember that on Saturday night I can't tell my friends that I'm going out with and partying with on Saturday night that i got to get up early because i got to go to church the next morning. I can't tell them that. i got to tell them, oh, I've got an appointment tomorrow. I can't let it slip of what I'm actually doing. No. Pick a side. I'm proud of being a Christian. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm willing to live for Jesus, whatever that, that means. Whatever cost I've got to pay, nothing compared to the cost that he paid for my soul, that's for sure. And I want to live every single day the best to my ability in faith, believing every shred of God's word, every promise that he has given me is true, and I'm going to live like it from here on out. And when I get on my knees and I pray, and I call out to God, I'm going to believe that he hears me and that he's going to answer as he sees fit. And just like Job, though he slay me, I will trust him. If God kills me, I'll still trust him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if I burn up in the fire, I still trust him. I still ain't bowing down to this world. Faith, that's what pleases God. If you're here tonight and you don't know for sure that you're a Christian, you can't even begin to live by faith until you first settle up. Who's your Savior? If there's never been a time, a day, a place in your life where you've been born again, tonight's your opportunity. It's not a matter of joining this church or making sure that you're going to come to church every single week for the rest of your life here. It's a matter of knowing God loves me, Jesus died for me, and I put my faith in him as my Savior tonight. There's never been a time like that for you. You have that opportunity tonight. For those of us who call ourselves Christian, double-mindedness, done. We're not doing that anymore. We're walking by faith from here on out, moving forward. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.